Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. I've always seemed to get, for whatever reason, a disproportionate amount of press or media. And throughout my whole life, somebody will explain someday why, but I've always gotten a lot. And as a businessman, I was always treated really well by the press. You know, the numbers speak and things happen. But I've always really had a very good press. And it wasn't until I became a politician that I realized how nasty, how mean, how uh, vicious, and how fake the press can be as the cameras start going off in the back. <laughs> but, but overall, I mean, the bottom line, somebody said, well, they couldn't have been that bad because here we are. We're president, and I think we're doing a really great job with my team. I have a team of just tremendous people, and I think we're doing a very special job, and I really believe it was time. And it was time to do that job. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. There you had the president in Davos laying it down. I, lo- I love the press of boo in the background when he calls them out. Oh man, it's this is the most this is the most entertaining presidency. Just put aside the politics and all the wins, and I'm not yet tired of winning. But this is the most entertaining presidency to be a political analyst for, certainly in my lifetime. It's great stuff. It really is. He's up there in the presses in the back, boo. And they just can't handle any of this. They hate what's going on. Because here's the here's the overall storyline that they've been running with for a long time. Here's what you've been hearing about, right? International community, like, just they hate Trump. I mean, like, we're not going to have any allies left. And, like, world leaders won't talk to him. And, like, oh, my gosh. Like, what's all that stuff, right? So much whining so much snowflakeism out there from people who think that Trump is is going to destroy all of our relations with the rest of the world and oh it's just so just so terrible meanwhile he shows up at Davos which is you know fancy it's in Switzerland it's very like you know yodeling skiing and big bank accounts and he's got this collection of world leaders and these kind of events are are really they are just media and photo op stuff it's it's not it's not really useful policy right it's not all that much to do there other than give some speeches and and who really cares you know that the davos forum all right but trump takes that as an opportunity to get the message out there so they're not going to hash out some amazing international agreement with world leaders necessarily but trump's at least going to say hey you know we're open for business things are going well and he's treated there kind of like a rock star you know, people are like, oh, wow, Trump, the the Trump presidency is not this blight, is not this uh, terrible, uh, cretinous evil that people don't want to be anywhere near. Right. That's just not the case. And the press is all freaked out about it. Jim Acosta over at CNN is not a happy camper. He's had a pretty good 
uh, reception here in Davos uh, for somebody who railed against globalism as a candidate for president. Uh, he has been mixing and mingling with these fat cats and bigwigs uh, nonstop uh, ever since he's been on the ground here in Davos, and he's had a pretty friendly re reception. I, I will say, though, it was rather remarkable to hear uh, the founder of this World Economic Forum uh, also take jabs uh, at the press and say that the president uh, is the victim of biased interpretations and misconceptions. Uh, all in all, it, that, that was a fairly a pitiful display, uh, I think, uh, to have so many business and, and global leaders here have those kinds of statements made uh, with the president by his side, and then nobody really take exception to that. But that, that is <laughs> sort of the what we're living in. That's the environment we live in I know, it's so uh, with sad. President Trump. All in all, it was, it was fascinating to watch the president get this reception here at Davos. Not what I expected. That's so sad. Oh, Jim Acosta's sad. So the head of Davos is like, yo, the media is all over Trump. It's crazy, right? And there's Jim Acosta, reporter, to let us know that it was a, quote, pitiful display that the head of Davos is agreeing with Trump that the media hates him. Uh, this is what I want to know. I, I would like the opportunity at some point. I mean, they'll never do this, right? I, I think I'm probably like not allowed to go into CNN anymore, But uh, even if I'm invited. But the question I want to ask is, do any of you really think that the press doesn't hate Trump? So why do you get annoyed when he says that, that you do? Does anyone really think that there hasn't been a massive media effort to undermine this presidency from the start? Well, if we can all agree that that's the case, what's the problem? Why do they get mad when he says it? It's not just trolling them, which is also great. It's that he confronts them with basic realities that they object to and can't handle. Uh, and meanwhile, he's... He did. A, he was representing America, doing a great job at the Davos thing. I mean, hey, here's Trump himself. The cutting of the regulations was every bit as important as what we did with the tax cuts. And but you put them both together, and we have a dynamic country again. I mean, everybody's talking. I just came out, and some really wonderful people said Davos has never been like this. This is like walking into the Academy Awards, except we have more photographers. The journal. Yeah, that's right. Trump is an international celebrity, even without being president. And now, yeah, yeah, the fact that he's the leader of the free world. Yeah, it's just good stuff. It's good. And, and by the way, the, the stock market's setting all the records that it is. I think it was up again, another record today. We've set 84 records since my election, uh, record stock market prices, meaning we hit new highs 84 different times out of a one-year period. And that's a great thing. And in all fairness, that was done before we passed the tax cuts and tax reform. So what happened is uh, really something special. Great companies, they're all investing. Uh, when one of the gentlemen said he's putting in $2 billion because of the tax cuts, I said to myself, wow, he's actually the cheap one in the group mm -hmm. because they're putting in massive numbers of billions of dollars. So you can imagine if you're, if you're part of the mainstream media and you're out there at Davos right now, not only are you having to deal with the, the, the crumbling facade that you've been working feverishly now for over a year to put up there of just, oh, Trump, it's going to be disaster. It's going to be so bad. Things are not disastrous. Things are going well in the country. 
and you got all these international dignitaries and big wigs and, you know, fancy pants and all the rest of it. And they're like shaking hands with Trump, listening to Trump, clapping for him. The head of Davos is saying, yeah, the press can't get an easy break when you're Trump with the press. Am I right? Am I right? You know, that's that's the last thing that the media wants to hear. And they won't adjust. They won't do anything to to make the the necessary uh, changes to be in line with reality. They'd rather run in this alternate reality of it's all it's all terrible. It's all for them. It's a nightmare. The success and prosperity of the United States and the the uh, victories of the president on the world stage are part of their nightmare. They absolutely hate it. So uh, today on the show, I'm just going to give you a sense of where we're going to go here. I'm going to get into immigration soon because that's it's got to be a focal point of our discussion today. We I mentioned yesterday what the proposal is for a DACA deal. We'll be talking about that, uh, and I definitely want to hear from more of you about this because I'm Look, I, I can't get behind this. I think it's a bad deal. I, I don't understand why Trump is, well, maybe this isn't what the deal ends up being. I keep saying that, right? But sounding right now, when you get Stephen Miller, the most hardline advisor that the president has on immigration saying this is the deal, I, I tend to think that it probably is. So we've got to dig down into that. And uh, we'll talk more about it. We'll also get into the latest on the FBI text messages and, and what's really going on here. What's true and what's not about that? You will note that uh, your your humble radio servant over here told you a few days ago that the whole secret society thing, they were going to say it's a joke, and now that's what the story is, and it sounds like it was a joke. At least that's what's accepted thus far. Uh, so I want to look at what's real what's not on the text messages, and we will get into that. Also... I'm not sure we have time to talk more about the flu season today. I'm just being a hypochondriac, but it's really bad. And I, I'm thinking it, everything I'm reading says it's going to get a whole lot worse. We'll get into that. Trump wanted to fire Mueller in June. People are talking about obstruction. That's just nonsense, but we'll go there. We'll smack that. We will buck slap that line of argument down together. That'll be fun. And I've got a, a really phenomenal guest coming up later in the show. We're going to spend some time with him here. He's calling in from uh, Mexico City, and he's going to talk to us about What's really happening with the cartels? I think that a discussion about immigration and the border and border security without an understanding of just how bad it is right now south of the border is it's incomplete. I think we have to know what's going on there. And keep in mind that whenever we're talking about the power of the cartels and the drug lords down there, we are inherently discussing a U.S. security and social policy problem because The drugs are primarily flooding into our country. So when you have really powerful, very violent cartels that are involved in political corruption and international trafficking, including primarily into the U.S. and into U.S. cities, that's got to be a part of the discussion, too, before we start saying, yeah, we're going to get a border wall built in five years. Okay, well, what happens for the next five years, folks? Because there's some stuff going on south of the border, as I was saying, that you're going to it'll Blow your mind, I think. We're going to talk to a, a journalist who's down there and been covering it for a long time about what the ground truth is. That'll be coming up later on in the show. So we're going to make good use of our time together on this Friday also, because we always like to. We'll have some fun. It is Action Movie Quote Friday if you want to bring it to the Action Movie Quote Master. Oh, do we have it? Yeah, there we go. Action. You can there we go. ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you? 
Truck Movie. This is Sparta! Quote. Say hello to my new friend! Fridays. Action Movie Quote Fridays. 844-900-BUCK. 844-900-2825. Light up those lines, team. Let's have a chat. Let's see what you think about all this stuff and more. And I'll be right back. There's a tremendous spirit in the United States. I would say it's a spirit like I have never witnessed before. I've been here for a while. I have never witnessed the spirit that our country has right now. So I just want to thank you all and all of those that are pouring billions of dollars into our country or $10 into our country. We thank you very much. Oh, there you have the president speaking in front of all these fancy world leaders. Talking about how America's kicking butt and taking names, and isn't it great? And thank you for investing money in us, and we're going to trade and do good things together, and it's all going to be great. And the media just just frothy mouth with rage. I mean, just spittle coming out of their mouths as they talk about this. Because he's supposed to be the the buffoon, right? The, the you know, pajama-clad, cheeseburger-eating, couch-potato, super TV watcher, which, by the way, that's what I'm going to be this weekend, I'm hoping. So that's my plan for the weekend. Sounds great. But that's what that's what the problem is here with the media. They, they've, they've conjured up this one version of Trump and what he's doing to the country, and it doesn't square with the truth, and so they just have to keep digging and digging and digging and hope that at some point catastrophe will befall the country economically or otherwise, and then they can say, see, we were right all along. That's what they're dug in on. It's not going to change, but I think that's why maybe some people should actually listen to, at least on this issue, that billionaire Tom Steyer who bought those really annoying ads, you know, about Trump and stuff, and I forget even what it was about. I just remember seeing Tom Steyer. I'm like, dude, you're a billionaire. You know, do you really have to annoy us? You're very lucky, man. But he was right about this, at least. Dems are overconfident about the midterms, or maybe they're actually losing that confidence pretty quickly these days. Listen, I think anybody who's a Democrat is overconfident about November 6, 2018 is wrong. I agree with your point that this is going to be a very tough election. I think the fact of the matter is this is going to be a hotly contested election. It's going to be two dramatically different views of the country and our values. You talk about the stock market. The stock market is basically benefits rich people. It is going to be highly contested. I completely agree with you. And I think anybody who is, you know, overconfident or taking anything for granted is wrong. Well, he's right that it's going to be a tough election for Democrats because on the the current trajectory, they're going to have nothing to offer other than this bogus Russia collusion nonsense. And they're not going to want to have that fight publicly if they're going to want to win. I mean, they're, they're not going to want to turn this into a Russia collusion referendum, I think. Based on what we have seen thus far, they can go with that all day. Oh, but Mueller, don't worry. Vote for me. Mueller's going to get Trump. I don't think so. I do not think so. There's some more information about the uh, FBI text messages that wasn't about the Russia collusion part of all of this. It's about that the fix was in for Hillary. So we've got some more text messages that I want to bring to your 
attention here. This is between Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. Never thought that they'd be quite as famous as they are. I can promise you that. They are they are now uh, household names for anybody that's reading newspapers or watching the news across the country. I say reading newspapers, reading websites. I feel like I don't think I've read a newspaper, an actual physical newspaper, and I don't even know how long. You know, And there's a difference. There's like a generational difference, too. When my dad reads a newspaper, he can like fold it and flip it and do, you know, because he's used to it. For me, a newspaper, I look like I'm trying to use it as a bed sheet or something. Like I'm trying to like keep the rain off me with it. I always, I can't, it like falls on me and I'm not, I don't have the dexterity in the hands to to handle the newspaper properly. So that's a whole different, that's a whole generational thing. You know, you kick it old school with that newspaper, you get used to, you know, what you guys know what I'm talking about. That's why now, do you even realize how fast, think about this, everybody, how fast your thumbs are when you're typing text messages? I remember being in computer class in the fifth or sixth grade and using like one finger on each hand and kind of poking at the keyboard. And that was pretty normal. A lot of people couldn't really type. And now I can... I could basically write a book on my phone with my left hand, you know, just just doing. It's it's crazy how much better we've all gotten at this stuff. What the heck was I talking about? Oh yeah, that's right. So the text messages. Sorry, got a little diverted there. The text messages struck and page. Here's here's what we've got in the new one. The last thing you need, Page wrote, is going in there loaded for bear. It's an expression I'm sure you're all familiar with. Uh, you think she's going to remember or care that it was more DOJ than FBI? So, this is more proof of what we already knew. This is just following through on many of the stories that I've been telling you about and the and the, the analysis that we've been uh, hammering out together here in the Freedom Hut, and that's that they didn't want to charge Hillary. We know this. Of course they didn't want to charge Hillary. Of course they didn't want to charge Hillary. They thought she was going to be the president. What do you think your longevity as a public servant would be, especially at the top level of the DOJ, in a Clinton administration if they had brought criminal charges about the emails? Now, keep in mind, maybe they, they could have brought charges and made her take some kind of a plea and just taken away her security clearance probably. I, mean, I know people say, oh, she would have gone to prison for decades. It's actually not true. See, I'm honest about this stuff. Some people lock her up, right? I mean, I get that, right? It's, a, it's more of a... More of a slogan, I think, than an actual policy director. Very unlikely, based on other cases of uh, that would be like this. That would be recklessness, not maliciousness, right? Reckless instead of I'm actually going to sell secrets or something like that. They're, those would be treated differently under law, and they have been in the past. But for a recklessness case, you know, I don't know. Maybe she would have gotten some jail time. I don't know. The point is that you don't want to be in the top of the DOJ. If Hillary turned out to be the president and you had allowed that thing to proceed or even just be too tough on her, right? So we knew this. But then there's another added level. It's not just, oh, I don't want to get in trouble with somebody who's the future president. There's the, I want to put my hand on the scale to help her and defeat her opponent. And that's now where we get more into the insurance policy and some of those other texts, right? One thing to say, gosh, Hillary is the machine, the Democrat machine. And I wonder what's going to happen here if we actually do our jobs. Still an abdication of duty, destruction of the rule of law. We'll talk more about it.
who's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. It's clear that they did not want her charged. Uh, they wanted her to be the president of the United States. Um, they really, really didn't want Donald Trump to be the president of the United States. And they concede throughout these texts that they did things differently in this investigation from any other investigation that they were part of. You may remember, as I do, Jim Comey telling us that the FBI doesn't give a whit about politics. He, he, he loved to tell us how apolitical the bureau was. Uh, and, and here we have these texts. Of course, our friends on the left say, well, these are texts between two lovers. Yeah, that's right. You're much more likely to tell the truth right. when you don't think anybody else is watching. This, I think, is the unvarnished truth of how they viewed both her, him, and the investigation and how they wanted it to turn out. Keep in mind, Tucker, all of this was done before she was ever viewed. So th the fix was in, uh, unfortunately, before they even interviewed the target of the investigation. Trey Gowdy's 100% right, everybody. We know now that what we suspected all along, what we had thought all along, is just irrefutably true. Hillary got a pass because of politics. And Trump is being uh, ambushed and stymied and harassed because of politics. And when the DOJ is doing the harassing, and when the DOJ is the one that's being used as a weapon of policy or a weapon for policy reasons, for political reasons. It's unacceptable. It's really a frightening place for the country to be. And I think that of all the of all the things that Trump has exposed by just being who he is and being in office, obviously the media's unhinged, pro-leftist, progressive sympathies uh, at the top of the list. But we expected that. I don't I don't think we could have known until Trump became president, and we've had to go through now this first year, we could not have known that they would try and end his presidency and that the DOJ would be a centerpiece in that. You'll notice they're not winning the argument against Trump. They, they would expect at this point, after a year, oh, Trump's, you know, his uh, approval rating would be, you know, complete garbage and he's on the way out and they're all excited for the midterms. Democrats are praying for catastrophe right now because absent that, they're not going to have a, a chance at winning the House or the Senate. And they're starting to figure that out. And they're not going to be able to take Trump down with this complete sham of an investigation. So this is where we are. 844-900-BUCK if you want to call him. we got a bunch of lines lit. Let's get to it. Evelyn in Greensboro. What's up, Evelyn? Hi there, Buck. I want to tell you about uh, an experience I had last night. I called the 202 White House number because I wanted to talk about the, you know, uh, that I think American citizens should have a right to know what's in their FISA memo, and I, I encourage Congress to release it. Well, I dialed the number, and for at least three minutes, there was dead air, no recording coming up, nothing. You would think that it's not in use. But I'm determined, and I stuck to that number, and I waited. Finally, three minutes later, you get someone to say, welcome to this number or whatever. Okay. Then another two minutes of silence. Then finally, I, they, somebody comes in and says, it's a recording, that if you have a comment to make, as a constituent, press this number, and so on. 
press that number, waited long again, and then the message finally comes through if you want to talk to your senator, um, you know, and so on. So, yes, I wanted to talk to my senator. I'm in North Carolina, and I wanted to talk to Senator Burr. Well, I finally got through where I could leave a message, and this is going close to 10 minutes, and not my message, waiting. And I finally said what I wanted to, and what I said was I felt that as Americans, we have a right to know what's in it, and it should be released, and that I'm sick of the corruption we've had over the past eight years or even before. And it's time to get this government on the right path for the people. And I just thanked them. I gave them my name, and that was it. But if anybody else called that number and got these blank spaces, they would hang up. And I'm wondering if that is really planned. I, I, I don't know. I think it just sounds like government incompetence. Although I do feel like we've all just experienced this process with you now. So I, I, it sounds like it's, it's no fun to sit and wait, Evelyn. I'm sorry that uh, that was the case. Hopefully your comment gets heard by somebody who will be able to pass it along to the congressman. I have, I'll be honest with you, I have no idea how that comment line works or any of that stuff. But good on you for actually taking the initiative and making a phone call and having your voice heard and then having your voice heard here on the show, Evelyn, which is coast just to coast. Don't get, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. People, just don't give up. We won't Stay give up, Evelyn. Line. We're fighting. Good. We're keeping our shields high here. Thank you, as always, for calling in. Have a great weekend, Evelyn. TJ in Madrid, Ohio. I did not know there was a Madrid, Ohio. I have learned something new. What's up, TJ? It, it's Madrid, Iowa. It's Madrid? Really? Madrid. That's that's how we say it in Iowa. Are you serious? I mean, I'm assuming I'm it's like Madrid, Spain, right? I mean, that's how you spell it. Oh, it's, spelled, it's spelled the exact same, but it's You guys Madrid. say Madrid? So I was picturing for yeah. a second, I was like, is this an enclave in Ohio with lots of fantastic no. tapas bars? <laughs> it's Iowa, too, by the way. So. All right. Call screener. You got the wrong state. <laughs> now you make me look like I really don't know anything. It's in Iowa, not in Ohio. You put the wrong initials up. I'm not even going to say who it is because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but it wasn't me. All right, TJ. In, I, in, in Madrid, Iowa. Thank you, sir. What's on your mind? Oh, I got an uh, action movie quote for you. All righty. Hopefully, hopefully you don't call foul on it. I guess if you get it right, then. If I get it right, then it's always a good quote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Pizza dude got 30 seconds. I got a little bit more. Wise men say forgiveness is divine, but never pay full price for half for late pizza. Ninja Turtles. You got it. All right. All right. Whoa, whoa. Settle down on the on the the buzz there, guys. Come on. You're going to. Um, yeah, no, I, I love the Ninja Turtle movies growing up, man. I saw all of them. Yeah, I used to watch the cartoons. I was all about it. I was a Raphael fan, you know? Never yeah, really liked that yeah. Leonardo too much, bit too much of a kiss up. I was a I was a Raphael I did, guy. I did, I did think about doing a Raphael quote from that movie, but Michelangelo is hard, hard to pass up. I think that for the first version of that movie is pretty good. Actually, a lot of parents thought it was too violent at the time, and they had oh, these yeah. demonstrations, if you remember, where they were actually destroying Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle merchandise because they thought the movie was too violent. The movie was kind of violent, I but I, I thought it was good. It was, it was Jim Henson was uh, involved. 
Oh, gotcha. I was born in 89. It came out in 90, so I don't think my parents had much to say. But (laughs) Fair enough, my friend. Well, Shields High, and thank you very much for the call, TJ. I appreciate it. I learned something new. Madrid, Iowa. There we go. Yeah, a little random fact that I know that none of you will care about, but I just want to share it anyway. I'm pretty sure that uh, Chuck Lorre, who is the guy, the creator of Two and a Half Men, is until Two and a Half Men, one of his biggest media credits was that he wrote the theme song for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The J- Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah, that that's that's right. See, I dude, I watched a lot of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles growing up. It was pretty cool. It was also at a time when we all thought that like if you did enough ninjutsu and and enough uh you know, meditation and stuff, you could beat up 10 guys at once. It actually turns out that you actually you have to like be in really good shape and and learn how to fight to do that. You can't just learn some moves and then, you know, hi doesn't really work that way from what I'm told. Uh, anyway, all right, enough of the Teenage Mutant Turtles. Sorry, he, he, he just tapped into a, a part of my childhood there, though. I, I watched that stuff all the time. Saw all the movies. I even saw the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie where they got sent back to feudal Japan. So random, right? That was three. Two was Secret of the Ooze, in which Vanilla Ice makes an appearance Go Ninja, Go Ninja, Go was the song. I could probably do all the words right now. So it was very special. Apparently, I am very special, too. All right, let's get into the next call. Greg, my brother Greg out in Oklahoma City. What's up, Greg? Buck, uh, I just want to say shield tie to the team. And, yes, sir, uh, to, to you, talk- too. Can we, do we, can we call you Door Kicker, Greg? we got to come up with an official nickname. We can go with door kicker, Greg. Door kicker. I was going to say door kicker or snake eater. I don't know if you saw, by the way, they were uh, actually I, eating snakes. Did you see that? It was the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. Tell I, tell the folks what this is because I, 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 it was on the Twitter. So, uh, SecDef Mattis went to Indonesia and their special forces did a demonstration of courage and strength and all sorts of crazy stuff. They walked through fire and then they bit the head off live cobras that they had wrapped around their necks. It was the coolest thing ever, and I want to go to war with those guys. Yeah, if you're biting the heads off live cobras, I'm down with you. These guys were literally biting the heads off of cobras in front of our Secretary of Defense, everybody, as a, like, we are we are badass. Look at what we're doing. It was wow. It was so amazing. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Uh, so anyway, I'm glad you saw that, too. I was like, my <laughs> gosh, this can't be real. Oh, it is. Uh, I want to talk about the little immigration plan or proposal or whatever they're going to call it right now. And I'm kind of like you. I'm half in half in this. Obviously, as an evangelical Christian, I want to help as many people as possible. Um, So I like the plan of helping dreamers that, through no fault of their own, are here in America. But the other half of me knows the Democrats too well. And while they're complaining that this is a, quote, white supremacist deal, whatever that nonsense means, we all know that this is just one step in their real goal of giving amnesty to 20 or 30 or however many million of to the illegal aliens that are in this country. Um, and so on that side, I, I know that if they, we agree to this deal, the next amnesty is two years, four years down the road, whenever they get a president, uh, Democrat in. And so I want to say no to this deal, and I honestly just want to say no to dreamers. Um, maybe they can get some sort of status to be, you know, legally here, but not citizens. Because as we know, they're cha- they're, they they want to change the demographics of this country, um, you know, two million at a time if they have to. 
this is a long game for them. Oh yeah, no, it absolutely is. Look, I I agree with you. I also feel look, I'm I'm a sympathetic guy, man. I I try to I I don't want anybody unnecessarily to you know have their hopes and dreams crushed. But at the policy level, and when you're talking about rule of law stuff. You know, there, there's no way to do this without making some people unhappy. And I, I got to put the interests and the long-term security and prosperity of my fellow Americans ahead of those who are not not actually Americans. I, that's just the bottom line. So, Greg, thank you very much for calling in, man. Shields, hi to you as always. Always good to talk to my friend Greg. Uh, all right, we're going to uh, roll into a quick break here, team. We're going to come back more on immigration for sure. I didn't want to spend too much time on the— Here's the whole thing about the whether Trump thought about firing Mueller. First of all, I, I I'd be I'd be fine with it. So there's that. <laughs> like I'm like, yeah, fire him. This is a joke. This investigation should stop. The only reason he's not going to do it is because it would. I, I don't know. I mean, the media freaks out so much. Is there even a different level of freak out for them to go to? You know, I mean, is, is Jim Acosta going to like show up in the in the West Wing, dressed in, I don't know, a clown suit or something? Well, yeah, there you go. I mean, what are they going to do to show their additional disple- uh, displeasure if you had Trump actually fire Mueller? I don't, I don't see it. So I, I'm okay with it. That's why people are like, oh, well, he, at least he didn't do it. I'm like, yeah. And obstruction, I reject that too. He's allowed to fire him. And they say, well, it depends on the reason. When somebody can fire you for any reason, unless you have proof that the reason is what you think it is, you're never going to be able to say otherwise. So it's just kind of a waste of everybody's time. All right, all right. Immigration, more of that coming up, and also action movie quotes in effect. If you want to throw those my way, we got I want to do some new ones for the uh, intro there. We've got some better ones. Um, and uh, whatever else is on your mind, 844-900 buck. It's a Friday show. We do have that guest joining us in the third hour on the cartels. I think it's going to be a really interesting interview, and you'll get a lot of background on why is the violence in Mexico so bad right now? What's happening there, and how is it affecting us here in the States? Because it is. I think you can all guess the media is not exactly running around trying to tell us how bad things are going south of the border right now with the cartels for a whole bunch of reasons. We'll be right back. But for a permanent fix, I have to say, uh, of our immigration laws and disrespect, we're going to need Congress to act. The American people have known for more than 30 years, American people are right about this, that our immigration system is broken. It's intentionally designed to be blind to merit. It doesn't favor education or skills. It just favors anybody who has a relative in America and not necessarily a close relative. That defies common sense. I've rejected usually the formulation that immigration is broken in this country because it's most of the problem as I see it is an unwillingness to enforce the laws that we already have. But I would note that now the Trump administration and uh, and Attorney General Jeff Sessions has added into the mix not just how do we deal with illegals, but how do we deal with legal immigration as a part of the discussion, which I think is very important. And that's where you can argue that it is it is broken. And you see that the formulation had been used by the left to say it's broken. So we need to completely reconstruct it more, you know, more immigrants from more places all over the world, you know, more of what we're already doing, essentially. And now we can have a discussion where we say, well, hold on a second. 
why would we want chain migration over a merit-based system? And the good news is more people are finding out now, I think, than ever before, hey, Canada has a merit-based system, very multicultural place, very progressive, actually, in many of its political. I know some of you, some of our Canadian audience right now is like, not here, but you know what I mean, some of the overall trends. I mean, Justin Trudeau, the guy's not exactly the second coming of Churchill, but you've got immigration run by point systems in Australia, in Canada, and a whole bunch of places. Not not racist countries, not racist policies. So why can't we adopt some of what is done successfully by other first world developed prosperous countries? Never mind the fact that, you know, if I showed up in the EU and said, hey, you know, I, I want to be an EU citizen, it doesn't work that way. They wouldn't just be like, yeah, here's your passport, right? It's actually pretty hard from what I understand. And that's if you're trying to do it the right way and you know, you've got a, a degree and some skills maybe you can bring to bear. It's still hard. Anyway, let's get into some more of our calls here. Brian in Worcester, Massachusetts. See, I know how to pronounce it. What's up, Brian? Hey, Buck. How are you doing tonight? I'm good. Thank you for your call. Hey, uh, you know, this whole DACA deal that Trump put out, I think it's actually politically a pretty good uh pretty good idea but they've put the uh, democrats in a situation where they have to reject amnesty and i think the dreamers are going to start to see that and start wondering you know what they're really up to wait okay so i was going to go into this in just a moment but this is good because you're going to help us transition what do you think they're going to do they're going to the democrats will reject amnesty i'm confused absolutely because it's, it's trump's deal they don't want a republican deal to go okay through, so yes uh, and I get yeah, it. I get it. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm sorry. Just this is I was talking to Mike and the rest of the team here a second ago, and this is what we were discussing, which is could this be Trump showing that they won't even just they won't take it just because Trump is offering it? Do you think that's what's going to happen? Elizabeth Warren. Oh, yeah. Elizabeth Warren is already rejecting it. So is Mackey. You know, so I'm they're uh, they're definitely uh, going against this whole deal just because it's from Trump is saying it's, you know, that, that basically because of the wall. But with the Dreamers, they don't they care less about the wall than they do about their own amnesty. All right. Excellent call, Brian. Thank you. We're going to get into this more right after the break. Everybody stay right there. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. Trump's immigration proposal is out there, and some on the base are upset. I'm going to have to count myself in that number. I don't think this is a good deal if it goes through as offered. Now, a negotiation is a series of discussions that involve changes, compromises, concessions. Not sure what the end result of this will be, and there could be some gamesmanship certainly on both sides, but Trump may see this as an opportunity. There may be an opportunity here for Trump, whether he intended it that way or not. Let me explain. And I believe one of our previous callers was was alluding to this. What if this is unacceptable to Democrats out of hand right away? What if all of a sudden, and I think we're seeing this happen right now, the dreamer component of this is clearly just the first step. This may be, 
This negotiation over immigration, over the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival population, those covered in that program, this may be the moment that what I have been warning about all along, that this is just the beginning of much more, that there will be a mass amnesty and there will be more demands and concessions on top of that, that this will be, exp- this will be exposed because of the offer that is too generous for many on the Trump side of things in terms of what it concedes to the other side from the outset, which is that there would be amnesty for 1.8 million or so illegal aliens who are covered under the DACA program. Um, I would note that that's a, that's a lot of people that would be allegedly or apparently falling into the specific categorization of being brought here before they were 18 in a certain period of time, that's a lot for whom that happened. That's a lot of people. Uh, I just would know how much checking was there of who gets covered under the DACA program that applies for it. I would be willing to bet very little. But here's what we're already seeing. The other side isn't saying, wow, Trump might be Trump might be breaking a campaign promise here. Great. Let's go into this with good faith, uh, faith negotiation. No. No, the extreme elements, the extremist elements of the Democrat progressive left on immigration are being exposed right now. You're seeing more and never missing an opportunity to pander to the most progressive parts of the Democrat Party. You have Nancy Pelosi making this just explicitly a racial issue, she says. Uh, While I'm on the subject of dreamers, since last night the president put forth a plan, let me just say what I said last night. That plan is a campaign to make America white again. It's a plan that says over 50% of the current legal immigration will be cut back, that many people will be sent out of the country. Very interesting. Nancy Pelosi, who is just an, a, an utter propagandist who has no moral or policy core to speak of, right? Just with whatever will chase power for the Democrat left however she can, in every way that she can, does not realize that it was an, an official written promise of Teddy Kennedy, who was involved in the creation of most of our current immigration policy, Back with the uh, Immigration Act of 1965, I think it was, said that this would not be used to alter the ethnic composition of the country. That was that was the the lion of the Democrat Party, right? The lion of Chappaquiddick, Teddy Kennedy. That was what he was pushing for back then. But n- now, it's very interesting, isn't it? You'll have MSNBC and others that will. Oh, they openly celebrate the demographic change in the country as that, that, that that's an inherently good thing. And if anybody says, well, I kind of like the way America's been up until this point, I don't think we should keep upending this and, and changing it. They're considered that's racist. Now we're being told that's racist. Oh, OK. So that's where this is going to come down to. I would note that's also why the media jumped on the Trump 
blank hole comment so much because they're trying to make this a racial issue in the hopes that they know they're not going to scare away Trump's base on this, but they can pressure enough undecided or persuadable voters that in the midterms this will pay off for them. They'd prefer the moral blackmail of support our near open borders policies and the lawlessness that comes with illegal immigration or else you're a racist. That's that, that's the moral blackmail that they are offering to people or that they are threatening people with. Right. You better support us or else. And then I saw some of the recent responses from dreamer advocacy groups. Which it's just it's amazing that this is where we are in this debate, in this discussion. These are people who are in violation of U.S. law. That, that is a fact. And somebody, whether it's them or their parents, knowingly violated U.S. law for the very clear advantage of being in this country versus being in a whole lot of other countries. Right? Being, in, being in America, just being here is a special thing. And no one will be held to account for, to account for it. That's what they're planning. That's what the only acceptable outcome is from the dreamer perspective. They can't be held to account. Their parents can't be held to account. And all the people that have been waiting for years, even for decades, to come into America legally, they're just chumps, according to the dreamers. They're just, you know, sorry, you couldn't walk here, so stinks to be you. That's what they're saying. But it's even worse than that. There's a a group out, uh, out there called United We Dream which is the largest dreamer advocacy group. And they have called Trump's offer to legalize 1.8 million and even possibly give them citizenship, everybody. They have called Trump's offer a, quote, white supremacist ransom note, end quote. A white supremacist ransom note. You'll notice Nancy Pelosi also saying this is a campaign to make America white again. They are trying to morally blackmail and and to browbeat the American people into thinking that any restrictions on immigration from poorer parts of the world is based in racism, not based in the economic realism of we can't support a giant welfare ward in this country that is endless, that is just the constant uh, importation of the developing world's problems. That's actually an issue for us. We do have a debt bomb in this country. I don't talk about it that much because it'll become a boring topic if I hit it all the time. But yes, we will eventually run into problems. If we lose our status as the reserve currency, whether it comes through our unsustainable debt load or through cryptocurrency or any number of other problems. I don't know what the economic future of this country looks like. Nobody does. If, if any of those things happen, there are some very unsettling scenarios that could play out. But bringing in large, larger numbers even than we already have of individuals from around the world who don't speak the language, have no attachment to the culture, have no attachment to the traditions and history of rule of law in this country, and just view this as somehow they're right because Democrats tell them it is, because it benefits, uh, benefits Democrats' power and their base, that is not a recipe for success. But the tactics of the Democrat Party are being exposed now. We are seeing it. Here you have dreamers that are this dreamer organization that is calling it a white supremacist ransom note. So what does that mean? Now it has to be dreamers. Illegal aliens is actually what they are called. Illegal aliens 
covered under DACA. I will say covered under DACA because that is a program of the federal government. That is a real thing. Illegal aliens covered under DACA, their parents, and family members of their parents, and family members of their parents' family members, and the family members of the DACA recipients who are not currently in the country. And how many million are we at right now, you think, folks? That 1.8 is going to turn into about 6 or 7 real fast. Does anybody seriously think if we legalize 6 or 7 million people that are all tied into this, that then you're not going to have to, you're not going to be forced politically to legalize the other three or four that are already in the country. And, and by the way, and now they get to bring their family members to that aren't already here. I mean, th- this is what we're facing now. You see this. They've, are, they've tipped their hand. Trump has made an offer that is too generous for much of his base that people I know are screaming about is a terrible deal, a terrible deal. I've been a little more circumspect about, okay, I, I see problems, but I want to know how this plays out. I, I mean, there's, there's, no, there's really only two options. Trump either says, yeah, we'll do something to legalize the DACA recipients, or Trump says, forget the Democrats. We're going on our own here. We're going to ram things through and go all the way. I know a lot of you are like, yeah, Buck, that's the option you should do. But those are the options. But we're seeing that the first isn't even really an option because of the Democrats, because of the demands that are being made. And what will that tell us? Where does the immigration debate go when it's not even enough to give Democrats 1.8 million legalized illegals? Because they want, they want the whole thing. They're taking a, a maximum-only position. That's what I think we're heading for right now. Because you'll note that if we end chain migration and change the legal immigration system, that's that's getting to the issue in a way that not a lot of Republicans are even talking about in the pre-Trump era at all. That is big. Democrats know this. They've never intended. The whole DACA thing is a fraud. They have never intended to just apply legal protection to people that were brought here as children. DACA is the Trojan horse for the rest of the amnesty and pro-illegal program. So how do we deal with that? That's the truth of it. How do we deal with it? Well, Trump is putting forward this policy, which will be negotiated and dealt with by members of Congress, and, and it'll be litigated out in the media at some level, and is forcing the other side to expose what their true agenda here really is. But that's what I think is so interesting about this current discussion that Trump has said, okay, fine, I'll do something that would even, some will even say, I'll I'll even sell out my base to get a deal done if I have to. Does he know? Or whether he knows or not, this seems to be what's happening, that the other side comes back and says, I don't care if you'll do 1.8 million. It's got to be more than that. It's got to be 1.8 million as a down payment on a 12 million person amnesty and you have to keep chain migration. So that 12 million person amnesty is really more like 20 or 30. Goodbye, my fellow Americans, to limited government, to rule of law, to limitations on the welfare state. To I mean, just it's going to be a free-for-all of leftist politics for as long as, as far as the eye can see and as long as anybody can even imagine. That's what's at stake here. This is this is very big. This is not a, a minor policy issue at all. And I want everyone to have clear eyes on it. All right. We'll be uh, back with your calls here in just a minute. Stay with me. 
Our goal is not to see how many people we can arrest. That's not what our purpose is. But to end the illegality and to restore in this country a legal system of immigration. And we want people to apply and, if, and wait their turn. And if they're not selected, they are not entitled to come into the country illegally. It's just that simple. Once that's established, people will stop, I believe, in large numbers from making this dangerous attempt. Perhaps more importantly, the wall will send a message to the world that in the United States of America, we enforce the laws of this country. Attorney General Jeff Sessions is probably most valuable on this issue of immigration. This is the one that he has the most useful and deep knowledge on, especially as compared to other senior officials in the administration. And you're, this is going to get into be this is going to be quite a fight ahead. I would note that Time Magazine, which is still a thing, apparently, I didn't know. I thought maybe it had folded or I mean, it should have, but it hasn't yet. Apparently, Time Magazine has on its cover. We are Americans with the asterisk, just not legally. And then there's a photo. I'm assuming that they're all illegals on the cover. I mean, because they're saying we are Americans, just not legally. And this is now part of it. The controlling of the messaging, the don't use the term illegal alien say, uh, say illegal immigrant and then say undocumented immigrant and now say dreamer. It's all this is all a form of perception management. This is information operation. This is mind control, folks. That's what they're doing by controlling the language. They control the perception. And this notion that it doesn't matter anymore that you have people who are in the country illegally, we, we, this has to be rejected. If Amnesty is okay now. I need to know why amnesty for another 10 million in another 10 years is not a moral obligation of this country. Because it's, we're not deporting a whole lot of people that are in the country right now, obviously. So why won't more people just come? All right, we've got a whole bunch of calls coming in now. Let's get, let's, okay, Felix in Pennsylvania. Been a while, Felix. How you doing? Hello, Buck. Shields high. Shields high, Felix. You know what? This is a very frustrating issue, you know, and I think I have the answer for it. There is a third option. Once DACA expires, they just start enforcing the law of the land. Yeah, that would also be an option, wouldn't it? Yeah, and then you can blame the Democrats for everyone that gets deported. And, you know, the other thing that nobody points out is that I have a number of friends who legally emigrated and became citizens of the United States, from Nigeria, from the Dominican Republic, you know, and, and the, the, the people who are legal immigrants and naturalized U.S. citizens, they have no love lost for illegal aliens. Yeah, because they remember what it was like to go through the process, which look, I, I admit is, is a difficult and pretty onerous process in a lot of cases to come into the country legally. And you got people that are, look, it's, it's line cutting. You know, how many of us, Felix, thank you for calling in, brother. Uh, how many of us have been in a situation where, you know, you're waiting in line for, you know, an airport security or uh, a movie ticket line or something, and people skip the line, it, it annoys you, doesn't it? It's not cool. It's wrong. Well, with immigration, that's what illegal aliens have done. They have skipped. They have cut in front of the line. There's a big line to get into the country. And it, it's, not, it's not supposed to be a big charitable enterprise. I mean, I know that we've been, we've been fed all this stuff and doing the jobs Americans won't do. The storyline keeps shifting, too. You know, now it's if you don't, if you don't approve of 
mass amnesty and more mass migration, legal and illegal in the country, you're racist. Oh, okay. Now, already we have a debt burden, and that's probably unsustainable. Discussion for another day. We have taxation that's still, even with the tax cuts from the Trump administration, still paying way too much in taxes. So, and I just would note that all this stuff that they're saying about illegals, you know, how one illegal, come on, don't break up families and all this. You can say to people who don't want to pay their taxes. What would happen if Republican administration came in and said, we're just not going to enforce the law against people who just really feel like they shouldn't pay federal income taxes? I know a lot of people that would probably say, you know what, here, I'll, I'll send you the percentage that goes towards the, the military and, and, you know, my Social Security and Medicaid, uh, Medicare and the rest of it, you know, that's on you. I know a whole lot of people probably just say, you know what, I'm not paying. I, I pay taxes when I buy stuff. I pay taxes all the time. I'm not paying income tax if you're not going to come after me with the with the feds. What would happen then? Oh, no, trust me, they would lo- they're still locking people up for that. But, you know, you better pay your taxes or else you go to prison. You better obey federal law or else you go to prison. Unless you're an illegal, then, then you get a pass. And not just on being here illegally, I would note. Document fraud, not filing tax returns, all kinds of stuff. Different laws for them, folks. Different laws. It's just true. Uh, we have... Oh, no, actually, I can't because I've only got about 30 seconds. So we'll take some more of your calls after this. I've got coming up, Yon Grillo on cartels. That'll be the next hour. It's going to be a really interesting conversation. I've been doing a lot of research on it, and the short version is that there's a bloodbath going on in Mexico with the cartels right now, and very few people are talking about it. It's really the worst it's ever been. The worst it's ever been, everyone. Think about that. And what that means for us and the drug trade into this country. We had 60,000 people, roughly, who died of opioid overdoses last year. Some percentage of that's tied to cartel activity. I mean, I can't tell you what it is. I'm looking into it right now. We'll also be joined by Emily Zanotti to talk about some of the Me Too movement moments from this week. And uh, we'll take some of your calls. Uh, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. Can't believe the show's half done. We'll be right back. Other shows just talk at you. In the Freedom Hut, we have a mission. We fight for the truth in a team effort. And Buck is back with our next play. I don't even know if it's worth me talking about, but I guess I've started, so I'll just have a couple quick words to say on it. That you had this guy who wrote the Fire and Fury book, Wolf, uh, already discrediting himself left and right. But then on top of it now, he's apparently part of this effort to spread a rumor out there that there was a an alleged affair with uh, Nikki Haley, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, and uh, with Nikki Haley and President Trump. Look, I mean, which is just completely preposterous and a disgrace. And yeah, I, I just, here you have a woman who is doing such a good job for the administration and is a real threat to the Democrats going forward because she's going to be a force to be reckoned with should she choose to run for any number of offices, uh, including, I think, the presidency. And that you just have these journalists who are to to borrow an O'Reillyism here, uh, smear merchants. You know, that's just what they do. This is just who they are. And that they would spread this garbage about 
Ambassador Haley just goes to show you that their whole oh, you know the the me too the me too isms of many journalists are largely driven by politics. So there we have it. Uh, let's get into the calls here. We got a lot of calls. I want to get into some of them. Uh, Kent in Greensboro, North Carolina. What's going on, Kent? Oh, not too much, Buck. I like the show. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you. Uh, yeah, you, uh, you know, being a ex, you know, CIA ex analyst, I believe. If I Correct. Correctly, and you'll talk about it from time to time. I believe one time I remember. I can't remember exactly what the quote was, but you said something to the effect of it, it's like a uh, factory for mediocrity. Or something to that effect. <laughs> I think I did I say it is a mediocrity factor, a mediocrity factory about the federal government in general. But yes, that is true. Well, yeah, and it was in reference to um, bureaucracies, which you were talking yes. about. But you know, CIA is such a common topic. You, you talk about anything on the internet, and you research anything, the CIA comes up, and then you you try to understand the CIA and how it functions and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, you have these people over here saying that, you know, it's ran by Satan himself. And then you have this group over here saying that, you know, they, they don't do any wrong and we should trust them. Yeah. So, Wait, can I just interject one thing here real quick, Ken? Isn't it okay. interesting how, how it's it's kind of, it's a commonplace to think the CIA for a lot of a lot of particularly leftists in this country, but to think the CIA is capable of any evil. Right. I mean, conspiracy theories, but the CIA gets so much traction but that a few FBI and DOJ folks may have been trying to help Hillary win the election, that's just crazy, right? It is. Yeah. It Think is about this, right? I mean, why, why is the FBI beyond reproach, but the CIA gets trashed with nonsense all the time? Right, right. I, I, I don't know. But my question is, though, what would be, what, from your experience, what is some good public information on the CIA that you would you believe is, is somewhat realistic as far as how it functions and its its pros and cons and all that sort of stuff. Oh, sure. That Look, be, that's that's like a very. Like a, I'm sorry, Ken. I'll, I'll, it's a very good question. I'll give you a few a few quick answers. Uh, for an overview, there's a book that I actually read before I started the agency on a friend's recommendation called Inside the CIA by Ronald Kessler, and it's a very it's a very good thorough overview. It maybe has had to be updated. I think it was published like 20 years ago. There's probably an updated version. But it's it's a good book. Um, so Inside the CIA by Ronald Kessler is a nice overview of the agency. And then I would just say pick some of the memoirs. There's a whole bunch of them of uh, senior folks in the agency in recent years. I mean, I uh, it, any of the any of the the big memoirs will give you a pretty good sense of what's going on there. So, you know, I wouldn't go the controversial memoirs, are the ones where like they didn't if somebody didn't get it properly cleared or something, I'd stay away from that just because there's a lot of. There's going to be a lot of sensationalist uh, chest thumping in those ones, but y- y- there's there's so many I can't even think of any off the top of my head. But basically, all the top, di- all the directors in recent years write books. So if you want to know what's going on, I would write I would read one of the directors' books. But Kessler is a journalist, so you could read uh, his overview, and that would be those would all be good places to go. Um, okay. There's the book Left of Boom. That's a good one. I really enjoyed that one. That's a memoir. You can read that book. Uh, Jawbreaker. Excellent book. Um, so I would read that one. Jawbreaker, Left of Boom are two of the memoirs I like more. So I would check those out. And then Kessler's Inside the CIA for an overview. And then eventually Buck Sexton's version of the intelligence community. But that's going to take me some, some time to write. Shields High, Kent, thank okay. you for calling in. <laughs> I, I, I hope that answered the question. Um, folks, I know I said I'd take more calls, but actually I just realized we've got to get in just a few minutes here. We've got to get to uh, 
Emily Zanotti. So if you don't mind being patient, we can uh, hopefully get in some calls coming up after that interview. But then we've also got Yon Grillo joining us from from uh, Mexico on the cartels. So just want to let you know there's going to be a bit of a, of a hold there. Uh, we've got Emily coming up to talk about some Me Too stuff. Emily's always a fun chat, so we're looking forward to that. And then, like I said, next hour we're spending at least at least a segment, probably a couple segments, with Yon Grillo from Mexico to talk about the cartels and the bloodbath right now between the cartels, and that's killed about 30,000 people in the last year. Yeah. Stay with me. We'll get into that and more. Cryptocurrency, my friends, it is in the news once again, and this time for reasons that are concerning to those of us who uh, dabble in a little crypto investing. I will just say this. I've been speaking to as many of folks out there as I can who understand finance and have some sense also of the technology involved here. For those of you who are like, how does this affect me or why do I care if you're not investing in crypto personally? And I'm not even sure investing is really the right term for this. Bitcoin and Ethereum and these other cryptocurrencies that are out there, all of them together based just on the volatility, the up and down moves of the market day to day, it feels a lot more like gambling. Uh, you, you can see this happen uh, any day of the week. You'll look at a cryptocurrency and it might be up 30 percent, down 15 percent, up 30. This is not like the stock market. This is not long term uh, stuff I'm talking about in terms of the up and down movement. And the the long term implications of this, as I've discussed briefly on the show, are a complete revamp, a, a kind of redo of the global financial market. Because if this works as some conceptually believe that it will, now there are others who say this is just a giant bubble and it's the world's greatest Ponzi scheme and there's a lot of doubters out there. And anytime, I, I will note, anytime you see a big drop, particularly in Bitcoin, social media is just full of people saying, see, I told you guys, a bunch of idiots. Don't. Meanwhile, there are other people that are driving around in videos with their Lamborghinis saying, yeah, I just invested in Bitcoin years ago, right? So who's right? I I don't know yet. All I know is that a Japanese cryptocurrency exchange lost more than $500 million to hackers. Um, That just hitting today, this is courtesy of CNBC. The exchange is called CoinCheck, and it said earlier today that it had lost, that 523 million of its NEM coins were sent to another account around 3 a.m. local time. The stolen coins were worth about 58 billion yen. And CoinCheck management says that it held the NEM coins in a hot wallet, referring to a method of storage that is linked to the Internet. So this is, you're going to see a lot more of this because as these different crypto coins pop up, this is relying on technology that so few people understand. I actually can tell you... I heard from a friend of mine, we have a mutual acquaintance, who is uh, literally a PhD in astrophysics from, I can't remember if it's Harvard or Yale, I think from Harvard. He's a PhD in astrophysics from Harvard, and he was talking to him about crypto, and he says that even he's like, I don't know, I don't know. You know he's somebody who has a, a, a particularly robust understanding of highly complicated mathematics and, and computer science, and he was just like, I Maybe it's maybe it's the future, or maybe it's all a big joke. He can't really tell. But I would just say that this does feel a lot more like gambling. For those of you who don't know, the way it works now, 
you can download on your smartphone an app and you transfer money from your bank account into that app. And by the way, I'm not encouraging anybody to do this because it is highly, highly risky, volatile stuff. That's a this is a totally you and you alone decision. But I'm just saying it's so easy to do it. You can download this app and all of a sudden you can start investing in all these different cryptocurrencies. And, you know, the old school investor mentality is, you know, you buy some, oh, if you bought GE in the last decade or so, it's been a really, really bad investment. But, you know, you buy a big company, you get dividends and it grows over time and smart long-term investing pays off. Crypto coins, you know, people, I have friends who have made three, four, seven times on their money over the course of less than a year. And I mean, I've, they've shown me their account, so I've seen it. And I'm just amazed at what's going on here. But can't can't continue like this forever. Something's going to change. I don't know what it is. Uh, and like I said, it, it is like gambling. And as long as somebody thinks about it in that way, I think they're on pretty safe ground. It's like you're going to a poker table and you could lose everything. It's not it's not safe long-term investing. Some people would come on and say, oh, well, I'm in it for the long haul, and great. You know, God bless them if they're real believers in this. They know stuff that I don't know. I, I have no idea how to gauge this really one way or the other. I, I do know that the theoretical application for this, that it would create an unfalsifiable, completely traceable, and trustable, that's really a word, record of financial transactions that all you need access to is the Internet, that would change so much. But just think of right now. I don't know how many of you have had this situation recently, but if you take your 401k from one company and you got to move it to another one, I've had to deal with this. They like want to send you a check and they get a deposit. It's all this, a lot of middlemen and policies and regulations and restrictions. If you had a perfect ledger that could not be hacked or falsified because the ledger exists, so to speak, on all the different computers that have it, so it would not be possible to just, or I should say, theoretically, it's not possible to change it without each person along the chain knowing. Uh, then you'd be able to transfer money and not have to worry about all these middlemen. And it'll wildly change the, uh, or dramatically, better word than wildly, dramatically change the business of brokerages and investment banks and all these kinds of places. So I, I think it's a really important technology. It's a fascinating just financial situation right now. But when I see that $500 million got hacked on, that, that's a lot of money, folks. Somebody was able to steal $500 million basically by sitting at their computer and hacking something. That's, you know, and when you, when you think about this versus, you know, the old school way to steal money was you got to roll up in a car and, you know, you got like a, you got a pistol and you say, you know, fill this bag with money and you could get shot and it'll... And that's for like, you know, maybe a hundred grand in cash in the register at the bank or wherever, right? That's now the bad guys can just steal 500. I mean, Hans Gruber had to take over the whole Nakatomi Tower in Die Hard trying to get a few hundred million dollars in German bearer bonds. Yeah, that's right. I remember. He wanted to be on a beach earning 20%. Now Hans, Bobby, he could just be sitting on a beach somewhere with his laptop the fictional character of Hans Gruber hacking into one of these Coinbase exchange or uh, cryptocurrency exchanges. Coinbase is one of them. And you know, I guess they think they'll catch him at some point. What if he's in a non-extradition treaty country? Well, what are we really going to do if there's a hacker in, say, North Korea that steals a few billion dollars of crypto? Guess what? Not a lot from what I can tell. 
So I'm just I'm watching this one, and I, I think this is I'd like to get another crypto expert on here soon to talk about where all this is going because we're talking now about. Gosh, I don't even know what the full scale of the value is, but I'm I'm pretty sure the cryptos, when you put it together, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars. Does that sound about? That's what I think it is. And how many? By the way, you got any? Are any of you in dabbling in the crypto? No. Smart. Don't you know? Be careful. It's like it's like playing with fire. A friend of mine and I were talking about it earlier this week. We both pulled our uh, our exchange, our, you know, our, our crypto apps out, and just like, man, this is wild. And no one even really understands the underlying, I say nobody, very few people even understand the underlying mathematics and uh, computer science behind it. But anyway, it is what it is. Uh, I'm going to get into a, a discussion here in a few minutes. We've got a guest coming up. We're going to talk about the cartels. I have read this book, Narcos, or sorry, El Narco. Narcos is the TV show on Netflix. El Narco, written by Yon Grillo. It's a really good book. And... I have been researching on my own, including looking up different uh, open source government documents and looking at what's going on with the cartels in Mexico, because it's very bad right now. And you're not getting that sense from the day to day news cycle. Uh, I'll give you some of the statistics on the other side of the break here, but it's as violent as it's ever been. It is uh, violence on a scale that is also uh affecting governance and the future governing institutions of Mexico. The cartels have spread their tentacles well beyond just the U.S., Mexico, and, and the Americas. Cartels are actually making a lot of money sending drugs. I'm not talking Mexican-based cartels sending drugs to Europe, to Australia. Uh, they have expanded. It's not just any any one drug or few drugs. Pretty much every substance that they can, every illegal substance they can get, uh, a lot of money for on the black market. Uh, methamphetamine has become huge. One of the big changes is actually that methamphetamine, because it's not, it doesn't require cultivation of land, and it, all you need are some chemists, and there are some young chemists who don't have a good way of making money in some of these cities like Guadalajara in Mexico, and it's very easy for the cartels to come along and hire them. Those of you who have seen Breaking Bad, that's much more like the real real life situations than a lot of people know. And they are able to flood the market with methamphetamines, tremendous amount of money in that. And it's a lot harder to track and find um, because there's no, there's no spray operations. It's not like you have to grow it. It's made in a lab. But also the people that are involved in the meth trade in Mexico, the cartels that have been involved in that, were more fringe players before who didn't have some of the established ties of, say, the Sinaloa cartel, uh, which was and is still one of the biggest, but has been the, the biggest and most enduring of the cartels in Mexico. And there's been this shift in power. Anyway, there's a lot going on with the cartel wars. And part of this, that the, I want to understand what's going on in Mexico because I also then want to look at how is this affecting us? You know, we see these stories about MS-13, which I know is based out of El Salvador and Honduras, but it's also all over the United States started really in El Salvador and Honduras, but it's been around for a, a, quite a while. Uh, but there's this huge surge of opioid deaths in this country. How much of that is tied to uh, El Narco, meaning the cartel activity? I'm willing to bet that there's much more of this happening than we're hearing about, and that much of the drug violence that's occurring in cities across the United States has some tie into the Mexican-based cartels, and just for political reasons, for reasons of political correctness, I think, and 
even bigger than all that, the immigration debate right now and securing the border, you're not being told what is really happening in Mexico with the cartels. There's some reporting on it here and there, but there's nothing like the comprehensive narrative creation that would affect how we vote in this country. So I, I want to get into, or and what we think should be sound policy. So I wanted to get into all of that with you. We'll have Yon uh, calling in from Mexico. He's going to be calling us from Mexico. This guy is, I mean, he's out there. He's on the streets, folks. He's covering it. He's been on the cartels for a long time, many, many years. So we will have him joining us in just a few minutes. I think you're definitely going to want to stick around for that. And then we'll uh, get back into the Friday swing of things. So stay right there. Last year, according to reports cited by the Associated Press, Newsweek, and others, was in fact the worst year on record for murders in Mexico. It exceeded the previous record of 27,000 in 2011. Last year, you had just shy of 30,000 people, 29,168 murdered in Mexico. A vast majority of this violence directly from the drug war. But you're not hearing a lot about the cartels these days, my friends, and I'm wondering why that is. So I invited somebody who has deep expertise on the subject to join us here on our Friday show. We have Yon Grillo with us. Yon has reported on Latin America since 2001 for international media outlets, including the New York Times, Time Magazine, Reuters, CNN, and others. His most recent book is Gangster Warlords, Drugs, uh, Drug Dollars, Killing Fields, and the New Politics of Latin America. He also has a book, El Narco, Inside Mexico's Criminal Insurgency, which I am almost finished with as of this week. Young, great to have you. Great to be here. So could you just give me a, a an overview here? Because there's very little coverage. I mean, there are some news outlets, obviously, you and other journalists in Mexico are putting out information. But the, I think the, the storyline that Mexico in 2017 had its deadliest year on record for murders has been completely overlooked somehow. What is going on right now with El Narco, as, as you call it, in Mexico? What's going on with the cartel wars? Well, yeah, they're still very much alive uh, and the violence is going on. I think perhaps one of the reasons it's not getting the attention um, it deserves is that um, to an extent people have got rather used to this violence and numb to it. And that's very sad to say. Um, it rose up first around 2008, and that's when you started seeing kind of crazy uh, decapitations uh, and I've covered, you know, uh, many of these, you know, it began, it used to be that five heads being cut off was a big story. And then I got to a place where 49 people had been decapitated. You know, I went to a morgue where, where there was 49 bodies there, all with their heads cut off. In fact, their hands and their feet as well. So there's a certain oversaturation. Now, when you hear tragically, um, if you hear a story um, like uh, just over the last couple of days, um, there's uh, a dozen people killed in this border city of Reynosa. There's gangs blockading roads, setting cars on fire. It doesn't really make a splash. People just think, oh, well, that's Mexico. We're used to that. So that's one um, reason. The other thing I think is there's a very crazy international world scene right now. There's big stories going off all over the planet. And that kind of draws attention away. But uh, here in Mexico and on the ground, this violence is very much carries on. Uh, the gangs are there continuing to fight security forces with heavy weapons sometimes, 
RPG-7s, uh, automatic rifles, grenades, and continuing to commit atrocities and, and leave you know, tragedies. On, on civilians, I went to a mass grave this year with more than 250 bodies buried um, in, in a, a mass graveyard which backed onto a residential area. So really tragic stuff carrying on. Yon, you've been there covering this in Mexico for going on two decades now. Is this the worst that it's been, or is this just in a different phase? I mean, clearly the murders are they're counting it as an all-time high, but it doesn't seem like uh, we, we're getting the sense that it's as bad as it once was. Is that just because the violence is more uh, located in certain parts of Mexico? Is it because there's less cross-border violence into the states from Mexico? How is what's going on right now different with these cartel wars from what we would have seen, say, seven or eight years ago when things were getting, when you were seeing a lot of headlines about the cartels and the spillover into America and all the security challenges that Mexico was facing because of it? So one difference is that if you go back uh, in time seven years uh, and you had this clash between these really big drug cartels, uh, you had the major warlords, as I call them, the gangster warlords, um, out uh, and about and fighting Chapo Guzman, Carrillo Fuentes, uh, Tony Tormenta, a guy called La, La, El Barbas, um, Beltran Leva. They were out fighting with these you know, paramilitary forces, uh, leaving cra- you know, crazy fight-outs in city centers and so forth. Now, those guys are all dead or in jail now. Chapo Guzman's in jail in, in the United States, in New York, uh, over there. Uh, Beltran Lever was killed. Tony Tormenta was killed. You know, many of the other guys are, you know, are dead. So what's happened is that a lot of those big cartels have been hit. A lot of them have broken into smaller fragments. So now you have a lot of these gangs that people have never heard of. Um, you know, I was just recently in Guerrero State, and there was a road there where you had a gang controlling one part of the road called Los Guerreros Unidos. Then you went a few kilometers down the road into the territory of a group called Los Tequileros. You went around a corner and the group called La Familia Michoacana was there. And then you went over the hill and it was uh, Caballeros Templarios. So now you've got all of these kind of splinter, fragmented groups um, run by guys who are often former killers, former hitmen, who are now running these groups. They're extremely violent and extremely predatory. But it's often more local, and that's one of the reasons why it's not making the same splash as before. Now, how much of that is a threat to the Mexican state or how that has changed? It's difficult to know. I mean, one guy I talked to uh, made a comparison. Guy Robert Bunker, who's an analyst of this, uh, uh, an academic researcher, he made a comparison. Do you prefer facing really big, powerful cartels or fragmented, very violent cartels? And it's like, you know, do you want a choice between cancer and malaria? I mean, it's like these are hard choices to make of which one is better. We're speaking to Yon Grillo, author of Gangster Warlords, Drug Dollars, Killing Fields, and the New Politics of Latin America. He's on the line with us right now from Mexico, where he's been reporting since all the way back in 2001. Tell me a bit, Yon, about El Mencho and the Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generacion, CJNG. Well, that's a cartel which is one of the most in, important cartels to look at right now. So you've got your, your eyes in the right place with that question. Uh, that's bucking this trend a bit of what I was talking about, cartels fragmenting 
and being small. That's a cartel on the rise. That's a huge cartel. They control territory from the Pacific Ocean to the, to the Caribbean Sea. They uh, control vast swathes of Mexico. They're fighting all over the place. Uh, they're involved in international drug trafficking, and uh, there's DEA reports saying they're the biggest cartel in California in the U.S., uh, but also they're involved in many local rackets, uh, including stealing petroleum and so forth. And they're a very paramilitary uh, cartel. Uh, there was an incident back in 2015 where there was a bunch of blockades done on roads, and some of their guys shot down a military helicopter with an RPG. This is when they took down the Black Hawk, right? Yeah, exactly. It was uh, eight soldiers and a federal police officer died uh, in that. Um, another incident, there was discovered a couple of small factories or, or you know, you know in, in, in houses, basically, where they were manufacturing their own uh, AR-15 rifles. Um, they were, you know, making them, buying the component parts and making their without serial numbers. And more recently, there was a weaponized drone believed to belong to the cartel discovered uh, in a car with some guys crossing a state border. Uh, Yon, can we keep you through a break here? We'd love to continue this conversation. We're just going to run into a commercial break. We'll come right back with you. Is that all right? Absolutely, yeah, of course. We're speaking to Yon Grillo, you guys should check out his book, El Narco. I'm in the last chapters of it myself this week. He's also got his latest book, Gangster Warlords, available on Amazon. We'll be back with more uh, with Yon from Mexico. Stay right there, team. All right, welcome back, everybody. We're talking to Yon Grillo. He is the author of El Narco and Gangster Warlords. He is a journalist. He is down in Mexico. He's been covering the cartels for decades. Yon, a question I have to ask you. How, you know, I, I've been in Iraq and Afghanistan, n- not as a journalist, but I've never been down in the parts of Mexico where you just haven't been spending time. You've been living down there. H- how is that? I know you're you're not just somebody who's going about their day to day. You're actually trying to track down what's going on with these cartels. There must be some pretty serious security concerns. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, in terms of my general life, I live in Mexico City, uh, which is uh, actually has about the same murder rate as Boston. So there are some nuances in this. Not all of Mexico is is this kind of crazy war zone. It's certain parts of the country. Um, so Mexico City has its challenges, but it's okay. The real challenge for me is when I go into the field to the very difficult places and, and approach cartel members or just drive through them. And they're, they're always very, uh, some very intimidating situations. Uh, you know, one time I was uh, uh, interviewing or talking to a bunch of guys um, with quite heavy weapons. They called themselves vigilantes, but they appeared to be just very straightforward cartel members. Uh, they had uh, rocket. They, well, they had uh, grenade launchers on uh, assault rifles, grenades and bullets taped to their bodies. And I was kind of chatting to them and, 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 and taking some photographs. And then one of them accused me of being a DEA agent. Um, and uh, you know, I showed them my website and convinced them I'm not American. I'm, I'm British. And eventually, the guy said, "Well, you know, if I see you again, I'm going to put a bullet in your head." Um, so, so, so I left that situation, and uh, there's been various things like that have happened uh, over the years. Now, but you, you also, and I'm just glad to know you're safe, and I'm um, glad to know that you, you know, are a veteran of dealing with all these issues. So stay safe down there, Yon. But uh, you mentioned something else that I wanted to touch on, and that is, you said Mexico City not nearly, not a not a rough place to live necessarily compared to a lot of major U.S. cities. What are the worst parts of Mexico right now? I think there was a State Department 
warning recently that did get a little bit of press coverage this was just in the last few weeks. I think there were four or five states that were mentioned in Mexico as being essentially no-go zones for U.S. travel. Now, that's not a no-go zone, obviously, for everybody, but they're saying U.S. tourists should should think twice before going. Uh, you're down there on the ground. What are the worst two or three places in Mexico right now at, at a state or city level? Sure. So I think the state of Guerrero uh, with the city of Acapulco has been for some years one of the most violent places in Mexico and one that uh, that for most people is, is quite good to avoid. Uh, the state of Tamaulipas is tough. Um, just crossing over from the Texas border um, over the, you know, the Rio Grande Valley into Tamaulipas. That's, that's a rough area. Uh, the state of Sinaloa, home of, of Chapo Guzman, in the place where he grew up, is it, it, a, a tough place. Uh, Chihuahua, uh, home of Ciudad Juarez, has also seen a certain resurgence in violence recently uh, and, and is a tough area. Um, and uh, Tijuana has had a very violent year, um, and Tijuana is pretty rough. Um, but, uh, you know, overall, I, I kind of put Mexico into three in a way. It's about, you know, about a third of the states in Mexico are quite rough. Mexico has 32 states altogether, including Mexico City. About a third of them are quite rough. About a third of them have a mid-level of violence, so some violence but not totally critical. And then some of them are actually fairly peaceful. If you go to Yucatan Peninsula, home to Merida, it has a similar murder rate to Belgium. So actually, um, it's quite peaceful there. And it's interesting why that is, why those communities have been more resistant to organized crime and violence. And, and one, I mean, there's not as much drugs going through those places, but also there are more traditional indigenous communities there, more community spirit in those places. I think that helps resist the violence and crime. Well, can you tell me what's the latest on this? I would assume ties into your your book, Gangster Warlords, Drug Dollars, Killing Fields, and the New Politics of Latin America. On the political side, the the PRI, right, the PRI is the political party that is once again, after a long period of 70 some odd years of dominance, it stopped. Then the drug wars got really hot. And then now the PRI is back in charge. How are they handling this? Uh, because there's a his- there's a long history of corruption there, right? I mean, I know that it depends on what period we're looking at, but how is the Mexican government handling the current surge in violence, and are they better or, or worse than they were at, th- at dealing with this from a decade ago? So uh, the the government of, of Calderon, uh, Felipe Calderon, was the was for the pan, and he had the big campaign against drug cartels, uh, and that was seen by many people as not working because the violence increased so much, and there was so much bloodshed. Even though he succeeded. Um, in taking down and arresting many drug traffickers. Now, um, I believe one of the main reasons the PRI came back to power is they said, well, remember, it was better back in the old days. You know, back in the old days, it might not have been democratic. You had one-party rule. It might have been corrupt, but things were safer. And many people felt that. Um, But their six years in power have been very disappointing. Um, By uh, President Peña Nieto's own targets he's failed. I mean, he said he would reduce the murder rate by half, and here we are talking about a record year of murders. So now people are very, you know, fed up with the pre as well. They don't seem to see them having any real solution to this problem. And I compare this uh, conflict in Mexico um, to the conflict in Afghanistan in that it's it's a bit like a conflict you can't win and can't pull out of. So it kind of carries on without a real end in sight. 
And now we're looking at the very real prospect of a left-wing populist politician, Andres Manuel López Obrador, taking power uh, in the elections this year in July. I, I believe he will is likely to win the election. So that's going to be an interesting change for Mexico and for relations with the United States. Yeah, Yon, I wanted to ask, on the U.S. side, you're speaking to a, a coast-to-coast U.S. audience now, people listening in, in all 50 states, literally. So uh, the border right now, in terms of the cartels moving drugs across the border and violence that, if not cross-border, is right up against it, where would you gauge that now versus where it was a few years ago? Is it, is it worse? Is it just different? How, you know, how porous and unsafe is the border as an area for drug trafficking and violence? I would say it's, it's pretty similar. Uh, I think if, if you compare it to 2011, you know, it's worse. And then it's pretty, it hasn't got really any better. You can't really see uh, proper improvements there. Um, and the amount of drugs is still going over. Now they're if you look at drug seizures, you know, it's always hard to know the amount of drugs going over the border in the United States because it's a clandestine thing. But the number of seizures, uh, the, the type of drugs changed. Like a few years ago, there was more cocaine being seized. Um, now there's more heroin, um, a bit less marijuana, uh, you know, likely because of the legalization of marijuana in some states in the United States, uh, but more crystal meth. So you kind of see trends, but people are still smuggling drugs. And, and earlier this year, I was in Nogales, a big area for smuggling, and I interviewed one smuggler there. Um, and he was you know, saying, you know, drugs are going to keep going across. And they have many tunnels there. They catapult them over the wall. Um, they can take them over the wall in backpacks, um, cross them through the desert, or take them over the border in trap cars. So still plenty of ways to get drugs into the United States. Yon Grillo is a journalist reporting from down in Mexico. Check out his books, guys. He has written El Narco, Inside Mexico's Criminal Insurgency, and Gangster Warlords. You can get them on Amazon or in fine bookstores near you. Yon, uh, great work. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. We'd love to have you back. And also, I really enjoyed your book. Anytime. All the best there. All right. You take care. Well, as always, please. Cheers. Well, Tim, I hope you really enjoyed that discussion with Yon. Uh, very much enjoyed reading his book. It gives you a, a really good backstory about the the drug wars in Mexico leading up to the present day. So it takes you through that period where Vicente Fox and Calderon, those governments with a lot of U.S. support, went after the cartels and what that meant. And for those of you who are fans of the Netflix show Narcos, just so you know, the next season will be about Mexico. And it from all I've been doing a lot of research on this recently. I just find that this is a, a subject matter that doesn't get nearly enough journalist attention for a whole bunch of reasons, despite the fact that this affects us. I mean, think about this, everybody. How much more do you hear about you know what's going on against ISIS? Not that that's not important, but then these cartels, which are engaged in paramilitary actions in Mexico, and they're flooding our streets with drugs and killing people here, killing people in Mexico. This is a much bigger issue than you'd get a sense of from day-to-day news cycles. So anyway, team, we'll have more on this. I'm going to keep covering it, but uh, we'll be back in just a few. All right, everybody, it's Friday, and it is Zanati time. She is a blogger and columnist, writer for The Daily Wire. You can check out her latest at dailywire.com. Uh, great to have you, Emily. Good to be here. All right, so I know that there was, uh, on the Me Too movement, 
I've been saying for a while, I think we've yeah. even talked about it here on the show, that there would come a point at which we would see some strange uh, moves by the Me Too crowd in terms of who was going to get in trouble and for what. You had the big right. Aziz Ansari thing. That's gotten a lot. And, and I think he did he get booed in absentia somewhere? I saw that that happened. Yeah, he's actually been fairly ill-treated about this whole thing. I mean, Aziz Ansari, a story came out about him a couple of months, a couple of weeks ago. And essentially, this story was a retelling of a really bad date. It wasn't really like a sexual assault or a sexual harassment. It was just they were awkward and it never quite worked out and she didn't leave. And it was a very strange story, but... He's being continually blamed for a sexual assault in the sex harassment case that he may not have done. And now he's getting booed and he may actually end up losing some of his uh, his gigs for this. Yeah, there's going to be some maybe not getting fired, but certainly some loss of professional opportunity for the guy. And while right. I, while I can't condone what was written in the, in that article, I also feel like. There's a difference between somebody being gross and somebody who right. is breaking the law and should suffer professional consequences. As far yeah, as I can see, he did nothing is- even nothing illegal and nothing that would even be sanctionable conduct because it's not like this woman worked for him, so it's not sexual harassment. It's a bad date. And it's super creepy. I mean, just what happened was creepy and it was gross, but creepy and gross isn't necessarily criminal. And just because somebody isn't really a gentleman on a date doesn't mean that they're actually a sexual predator. So we're kind of seeing this movement go a little bit off the rails. Yeah. I mean, you know, the the stuff I read about, for example, with Charlie Rose that he got away with for years and years with the crusty paw. That struck me as way worse. And those were employees of his. Uh, But anyway, James Franco, we've seen. Kevin Spacey recently was uh, taken out, digitally altered from a movie he was in, but he had Mm -hmm. made a pass at an underage at an underage boy. So they literally scrubbed him, though, from a movie. It cost millions of dollars to do it. And they did it. And was it all the money in the world, I think, was the movie. I think Franco Mm -hmm. is also now getting scrubbed. He got scrubbed out of a photo, right? Was it for the Grammys or the Oscars or something? He's also been digitally removed. He's supposed he was. Given an Oscar nomination for his movie, which tells the story of an even worse movie, hilariously, uh, but he was supposed to be in this Vanity Fair spread that had Oprah and Reese Witherspoon and all of these Hollywood bigwigs who have all been nominated for Oscars after what we found out this week. He was actually just digitally scrubbed from this Vanity Fair article. So it basically he was there. He took the photo. He hung out with the Vanity Fair journalists. He was in this group of Hollywood hotshots. And then when the magazine came out, James Franco was nowhere to be found, largely because of the Me Too allegations that have come out against him in the last couple of weeks. And it's his behavior is at least allegedly worse than Aziz Ansari's. Supposedly, he invited women over to be his protégés. He tried to teach them acting and then ended up kind of trying to teach them nude scenes, of course, because he's super weird. And this is all now coming out. So even though he's nominated for an Oscar, he will probably have to go in like through the back way and just accept the Oscar if he's given it. Uh, But yeah, he's pretty much being digitally scrubbed from all of this nomination news.
And tell me about, we're speaking to Emily Zanotti, everybody, dailywire.com for her latest. What's going on with the Grammys? Also a lot of political stuff. No surprise, I suppose. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So the Grammys, of course, now are going to follow in the footsteps of the Golden Globes and the Oscars. And they're also going to have their own set of Me Too, I guess, kind of a protest a little bit. So the artists and producers are all going to be wearing white roses. So that when they walk the red carpet, they'll all have their crazy outfits on, but they will have a little white rose that signals their support for Me Too and the Time's Up campaign, which is the official Hollywood campaign. Is there an album or song that you are rooting for in this? I can't even think of what's come out this year. I don't really... I really like that new Bruno Mars song. I have no idea if it's nominated for anything. I, I can't pay attention to this. I listen to, like, Yacht Rock Radio. I'm, I'm, like, I'm going to ask Molly what's cool so I can come back on radio and impress everybody because I'll know what's cool. So that's that's what I like to do. Uh, by the way, have you, you seen... You me know, too. Yeah, have, you, have, you seen, uh, have you seen this this article? Now, it is from RT, so take that for what it's worth. But I've se- I believe I've seen it elsewhere, too, where men in France now face a fine of up to 400 U.S. dollars if they follow women in the street, whistle at them, make loud comments about their appearance, or ask for their phone numbers. And I just feel like, this is no longer France. Like, what is happening? Like, they are so aggressive on the street with the whistle and the cigarette, and now it's like, you're going to get fined for this? Come on. What happened to Pepe Le Pew? He's going to be jailed, basically. Um, Yeah, so France has been... um, basically trying to clamp down on bad language they've said just across the board. So in addition to what we already knew was going to be clamped down on, which is politically incorrect talk, misgendering, things like that, that that are more sort of left-leaning, this is now kind of a response to this worldwide Me Too movement that they've said they're not going to let French men be French men, no more wolf whistles at women in the streets, no more lewd comments. You can't pick up a woman in a bar. If she doesn't want to talk to you, you can be fined up to 350 euros. So I kind of feel bad for guys in France. I mean, this is just basically cut off everybody's game at the knees. And this is just going to make all these guys get even creepier on all the dating apps, which, by the way, everyone is on now all the time. That's what's going on in the world. And, man, some of the stories I hear from ladies about, you know, sometimes sometimes the first line isn't a line. It's a photo. It's always a photo. It's always a photo. I've had friends who've come and visit me and they you know get on tinder to try and find guys in this area and it's it's never like would you like to have a drink it's it's (laughs) way racier than that oh yeah i'm always amazed too because you know my my uh my my brother actually was involved with a startup app that was that was like a a dating app remember told me that he was amazed that the biggest complaint they had was women who were saying that you know, this guy was being creepy or weird on the on the app, mm-hmm. on the dating app, but that sometimes it would go from, hey, you know, I like your hair, to bam, inappropriate photos, right. the next thing. <laughs> they switch really fast. Anyway, Emily Zanotti, everybody, check out her latest on dailywire.com and on the Twitter at emzanotti. Emily, have a fantastic weekend up in Chicago. Stay warm. Will do. All right, team, we're going to come back with some roll call in just a few minutes. Very much uh, looking forward to hearing from all of you. See what you've got for me in the inbox. Stay right there. Well, team, our Freestyle Friday comes to a close in this segment. Makes me sad. I'm just going to spend the weekend getting ready for Fall of Constantinople Part 2, the Shields High podcast that will be out on 
Monday. And uh, also, I will probably, if I venture from my apartment, it will only be to meet with some of my uh, friends who like to brunch. I've got like a brunch squad. It, it includes Navy SEALs, entrepreneurs, finance bros. It's a very diverse group, the brunch squad. And, and we own it, you know, because what is lunch on a Saturday afternoon? We call it brunch. And speaking of food, last night I also went out with a, an old buddy of mine who is just one of, you know when you have that friend who just always tells really funny stories or makes stories that wouldn't be funny if anyone else told them, somehow really amusing? I mean, this guy, we worked together at an internship a long time ago, and I met him because while all the rest of us interns were crammed into, I was literally in a converted electrical closet with another intern with no door. And he somehow was assigned an office because they had nowhere to put him. So he was in like a big office as an intern. And I came in and said, who's this guy? And he turned out to be a friend of mine now for, oh gosh, it'll be coming up on almost 20 years soon. Uh, he's a, he's hilarious, but but we made a we made, both made the decision to go with the porterhouse, and I you know the porterhouse it it kind of it kind of entices you in with its whole oh look at the the, the big T bone they bring it out you see somebody else, and I know that it's really like ordering two steaks, but there was a ribeye on that menu, and the answer as I like to say. The answer is always the ribeye. You, you, I've gotten your porterhouse objections, and you know what? To each his own. But for those of you who, who take my advice to heart, get the ribeye. And if you're going to order it more than medium, I don't know. There's no, there's no red meat salvation for you. I can't offer any fix to that. Medium rare, rare, those are the ways you get a decent steak. Otherwise, go to... In and out burger and just let them cook the burger. You know what I mean? Don't waste all the money on a steak. That's my opinion, and I'm right. Okay, so that's where we're gonna go now into well, you know what it is. Team Buck, it's time for roll call. All right, first up, uh this week we or today, not this week, sorry. This is from Jeff. Buck, first, the history podcasts are awesome. Still hoping the Battle of Hastings makes the cut. Just wanted to pass on another way I just discovered to listen to the Buck Sexton show. A family member gave us a Google Home Mini for Christmas. I was getting ready for work the other morning and asked how to play the Buck Sexton show. Lo and behold, it responded, okay, here is the latest podcast from the Buck Sexton show. Then it began playing the podcast from the show the previous night. Feel free to pass this on to everyone else in the Freedom Hut, Shields High, Jeff. OSS original Saturday squad. Well, Jeff, thank you for let, I didn't even know about that cool way to listen to the show. And I always like letting people know new ways to listen. So thank you very much. And OSS. So appreciated. Here we go with Ronald. Oh, wow. This is Ronald. You seem like a great dude, but this is uh, a little on the long side. So I'm going to have to read it and come back to it on my own time. So next we have Andrew, who writes in, Hey, Buck, these social justice warrior leftist groups, new wave feminism, Me Too movement, and media bias remind me of the dark and bloody French Revolution. The amount of extremism occurring now worries me for the future of this country. 
It seems like the next three years will either decide the beginning of the end or the revival of America. As for a lighter aside, I have an action movie quote for you. You're too ugly to live forever. As always, keep up the good work, and I look forward to the fall of Constantinople. Well, that quote is from Heartbreak Ridge, sir. So ding, ding, ding for me. And thank you for the action movie quote. And I hope you do enjoy the fall of Constantinople coming up on, well, it's part two when the fall actually happens on Monday. All right, next up in the hut here, we have Karen. She writes, I think dreamers should be required to pass an English exam. Karen, I'm fine with that too. And this is often talked about in the context of the immigration debate. Problem is, it's never enforced. And what level of English proficiency? Keep in mind that when you look at what's going on in a lot of public schools across the country right now, ESL, English as a Second Language, and all the different resources and and efforts put toward teaching people in the country right now who are, I'm talking about legally here, never mind illegally, is extensive. And we don't even have an official language in America, which I think is kind of crazy. You know, people say, well, it doesn't matter. We don't need it. Well, then why not have it? The language of the United States is English. Our language is English. That is that is a fact that is true, and that should not change. So I know people say, well, our official languages are, are English. I was about to say American. My official language is American. No, but English and maybe we should, you know. That, that changes, too, just as an aside. You know, for a while, people were calling it Gaelic, and then they started to call it Irish. And I don't know what the indigenous tongue of the Irish is currently referred to as, but it's gone back and forth over time. So sometimes the, the uh, designation of a language itself will evolve along with the political and cultural needs of a given community. So with that, we can go to, and thank you, Karen, for your note. Uh, Dave, who writes, Shields High Buck, the truth is spoken at Davos. Of co- Quote, of course, I'm aware that your strong leadership is open to misconceptions and biased interpretations. Therefore, it is so essential for those of us in the room to listen directly to you. Uh, we should all heed those words. Find Trump's speech in full. Don't listen to the media highlights. Thanks for a great show. Well, Dave, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And uh, I will look over that transcript again for some Uh, wisdom of Mr. President Trump. Rick, next up here. Buck, you're doing a great real show. I'm getting so much done around my house at nights because instead of watching TV, I listen to your show and work. I redid two closets, and tonight I'm painting one I totally reconfigured. Anyway, keep up the great work. Question, I'm listening to the fall of Constantinople while I work, but just on iTunes. Does that count as a download for you? Shields high, stay truthful, Rick. Rick, the answer is yes, indeed. Fall of Constantinople on iTunes. Any of the Shields High History podcasts that you listen to on iTunes count as a download. And uh, thank you very much for listening to it. I'm so glad that many of you, uh, many of you folks on the team are enjoying it. And yeah, so uh, I'm very appreciative. That I get to keep you company while you get stuff done around the house. I listen to, see, here's the little secret. I listen to some very information, uh, in. <laughs> Come on, Buck, English. Information dense, but uh, slightly lacking in production and storytelling value. History podcast, 
just as a means of cramming the information into my brain while I can't read. There's some great ones out there. And I, I don't want to I don't want to mention any right now because I'm not trying to disparage anybody's podcast. But if you just do a search for a topic, you know, you tend to be able to find some some interesting history podcasts. But they're not. They kind of go through the history of the subject matter like this. And then in 925, this happened. And then in 1130, this man decided to overthrow the king. There's a lot of that. So you just. I'm going to say it. You're a little spoiled from the Shields High podcast and the World of History podcast. The only exception to that is Dan Carlin, Hardcore History, who is uh, who is currently the the uh, LeBron James of history podcasts, if you will. So let's get on to the next one here in roll call. We have Leah OSS here. Would love to have Miss Molly stop by the hut and say hi to the team. Leah, that's a very interesting suggestion, I must say. I had never really thought of it. Uh, Miss Molly's a little shy, especially about public speaking. But I mean, many of you, if you don't know, I there are some photos of us on on Instagram. So Miss Molly is real; she exists. It's not my imaginary girlfriend. Uh, I, I'll ask her if at some point maybe she'll tape a message to the team, and uh, she'd only do it if she can make fun of me a little bit. So I will definitely give it some uh, some thought. I'll ask Miss Molly. She comes back from a work trip in a few days, and uh, I'll run it by her. Anyway, everybody, thank you so much for hanging out with me. I'm excited to get back in action with you all on Monday. Shield Tie Podcast will be out Monday, uh, episode two of, or sorry, part two of the fall of Constantinople. Please do check it out and also download this podcast. Share it with friends. Have a fantastic weekend, everybody. Rest up. We're going to have a lot to do together next week, including the State of the Union address. So until then, Shield Tie.